0: Your clinical team has discovered a new invention that could have a significantly positive impact on patients. You are convinced that the discovery is novel within the scope of the patent laws. You're certain that you should file a patent application and the business is pressuring you to file that application yesterday. It's tempting to simply drop that clinical protocol or CMC formulation into a patent application, dash off a few broad claims and get that priority date. But what else can you do to put the application's best foot forward when prosecution starts? I'm Amy kotman and you're listening to Baker Hosts. On today's episode, we welcome back Stephanie Lodis, a partner in Baker Hostetler's Intellectual Property Group. Stephanie has a PhD in organic chemistry and co-leads the firm's biotechnology, chemical and pharmaceutical practice team. This is part three of our series, Promoting the Progress of Science. And Stephanie is here to discuss the concept of inherent obviousness and strategies for avoiding it. Stephanie, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Amy. To begin, could you define what is a clinical stage invention?
1: In my mind, clinical stage inventions are those inventions that are developed much later in the R&D process. They're beyond the discovery phase. They're beyond preclinical. They're beyond the animal testing It's developed when the drug formulation compound has been put into humans and tested and something's been discovered that's surprising.
0: How is patenting a clinical stage invention different from patenting a discovery stage or even a preclinical stage invention?
1: Well, the laws are the same. Same laws apply to inventions no matter what field they're in or what point in time they're developed. What's different, I find, with clinical stage inventions is that There's typically much more prior art available at the time that the invention's discovered. And often that prior art is the applicant's own, which makes it difficult to overcome during prosecution.
0: So we've heard the term non obvious. What does it mean for a clinical stage invention to be non obvious?
1: Non-obviousness is a legal question that is based on factual inquiries, so this is different than anticipation, which is solely based on facts. In the U.S., an applicant will be denied patent protection if the differences between the subject matter sought to be patented and the prior art. Are such that when the subject matter as a whole would have been considered obvious at the time the invention was made, and whether it's obvious is judged from the perspective of a person having ordinary skill in the art. So, Amy, I just told you that non obvious means that it isn't obvious, and that's probably not particularly helpful, and it's really not. So, another way to think about non obviousness looking beyond the statute is asking whether the prior art would have supplied one of ordinary skill with a reason or motivation to modify the prior art to make the invention now being claimed and to make that invention with a reasonable expectation of success. So the rubric we use in the United States based on case law, we analyze the obviousness issue looking at essentially four factors. We look at the scope and the content of the prior art. We identify the differences between the prior art and the claims. We ascertain what is that level of ordinary skill for a person in the art. And we also look to whether there are any objective considerations that warrant patentability. And these can be commercial success, a long felt need, failure of others. Something to remember for clinical stage inventions, level of ordinary skill is typically pretty high. It's going to be a medical doctor, a PhD, usually with some postdoctoral experience. So that's the rubric. In practice, what happens in prosecution is that a patent examiner will typically find a prior art reference that teaches many, but not every one of your claim limitations. Examiner then tries to find those missing claim limitations in another reference or in another two or five references. And together puts those to make your claim. Together, all those references have all your claim elements. That's not the end of the inquiry, though. It's not enough for the examiner to just find all the claim elements in a few prior references. For obviousness, the examiner must articulate why that person of ordinary skill in the art would have combined the references together to arrive at a claimed invention and that they would have perceived a reasonable expectation of success in making the invention in light of the totality of the art.
0: Can an applicant be denied a patent for an invention, even if the invention was never
1: previously made before? Absolutely. So there might not be any disclosure of the applicant's invention in any single prior art reference, no actual reduction to practice, no prophetic example of applicant's invention. And that's not enough. That means that the invention is novel, which is certainly one prong to patentability, but it's not the only thing that needs to be satisfied. The obviousness inquiry precludes patent protection for those inventions that would have been discovered in light of the totality of the prior art. The inquiry is hypothetical, it's esoteric. Um, even though we acknowledge that no one has made the invention of thought of making the invention before, we ask, would they have?
0: Let's talk about challenges. Is the obviousness inquiry more challenging for clinical stage inventions?
1: Yes, it it can be. And many times by the time the clinical stage discovery is made, there's been a lot published in the field that's likely relevant to the new invention. And the more prior art there is, the more likely it is that an examiner will allege that someone else would have done the exact same steps that the applicant's done. Something that I'd like to emphasize, it's, it's grammar. So a little little English lesson. Obviousness focuses on what someone would have done. Would. That's separate and distinct from what someone could have done. Both words are auxiliary verbs, but would is the past tense of will. Could is the past tense of can. Will connotes inevitability. Can is permissive. It's possible, but not inevitable. there's two sentences that you can think of that really make this distinction clear. Consider the statement, Congress can declare war versus Congress will declare war. One is permissive, one is inevitable. Big difference.
0: That's really helpful. Why else might the obviousness inquiry be more challenging for clinical stage inventions?
1: Clinical stage inventions can be more difficult to patent because the obviousness inquiry, it's already a high hurdle. And then in clinical stage inventions, there's also the concept of inherent obviousness that often comes up. When we spoke about inherent anticipation, we asked whether something previously described always and necessarily had or produced a certain unnamed property. In obviousness, We already acknowledge that the invention hadn't been previously described. It's novel. With inherent obviousness, similar to inherent anticipation, the examiner can't find one or more claim elements in the art and the examiners alleging, well, even though I can't find it, it would have been there, it's inherent. So inherent obviousness asks, assuming a person of ordinary skill in the art was motivated to combine the prior art and arrive at applicant's invention, hypothetically, of course, would that hypothetical invention necessarily have the properties and aspects the applicant is now claiming?
0: To be clear, the law permits an examiner to deny patentability just because a hypothetical invention
1: would have had certain undisclosed properties? It does. And that law is based on the notion that if something was suggested by the prior art, it was in possession of the public, and the public should not be dispossessed of the right to practice that suggested invention. The public's right to practice the suggested invention should not be taken away just because the applicant discovered a previously unknown function or feature. And there are there's, there's three tenets that make patent prosecution of these types of inherent obviousness challenges difficult. One is about the claim limitation itself. If the claim limitation is made clear in the specification to not be an additional requirement of the claims, but it's more so just a property, that claim can be invalid based on inherency. Another thing to keep in mind is that if a claim is covering covering multiple alternative embodiments, A court or an examiner would only need to establish that one of those embodiments is invalid as possessing properties that are inherent in it. Third aspect to keep in mind is that if someone would have put together the prior art and come up with the composition that's now being claimed, the properties of the composition are inherent and it doesn't matter whether someone would have expected them or not. Significantly, though, all of those are high burdens. They're all really difficult to establish patentability, but the federal circuit has held again and again. It's made it clear that inherent obviousness is a high standard. It cannot be established by probabilities or possibilities. The mere fact that something may result from a set of circumstances is not enough. A claim element can only be inherently obvious if it's necessarily present or is the natural result of the combination of elements explicitly disclosed by the prior art.
0: Stephanie, you've shared some great information. Let's talk examples. What are some examples of discoveries that have been denied patent protection because they were deemed to be inherently obvious over the prior art?
1: There are two recent ones that come to my mind. One is an extended-release hydrocodone-only product. The discovery there was that the formulation that was produced. When it was given to hepatically impaired patients, patients who had liver dysfunction, they did not get substantially higher concentration of drug when compared to healthy subjects who did not have hepatic impairment. That was an important discovery for patients and dosing because it meant that you can dose hepatically impaired patients without having to adjust the dosage form, just give them the same dose that was given to the non-hepatically impaired patients. What the Federal Circuit held there was that coming up with that formulation, the formulation would have been obvious. The fact that it produced a particular PK in hepatic, hepatically impaired patients or non-hepatically impaired patients, that was inherent. Therefore, the formulation was held to be not patentable. Another recent example is for a ready-to-use formulation of a particular API at a certain concentration. There, it was found that that API was stable for a long period of time, and it didn't get get degradation products over a particular percent. The patent talked a lot about how the discovery was that this particular API was stable in solution. There was nothing in the claim about what methods or procedures were performed in order to develop the formulation that was now being stored. The stability was tied to the API itself. And in that case, the discovery was that the API itself was inherently stable, not that the API would be stable if certain things were done. That situation, Federal Circuit held that that composition was not patentable because of inherent obviousness.
0: Is there any hope for any clinical stage invention to be found to be not inherently obvious over the prior art?
1: Yes, it, it is possible. It's challenging not a doubt, but there are two recent examples that I think really hit home that you can patent these inventions. One is a claim to the lyophilized d ester of bortezomib. Bortezomib used a lot in therapy, not, not a stable drug. So there were lots of efforts to make a stable formulation. Applicant said, well, let's lyophilize it. And they lyophilized it from a solution containing mannitol. The process of lyophilization, lyophilizing from a mannitol solution, those were done before with other APIs, but not with bortisomin. What was discovered was after that lyophilization process, what was in the vial was this D-mannitol ester of bortisomin. That particular ester wasn't previously thought of to be anything that could be made. Everybody agreed that, yes, that, that is surprising. The argument against patentability in that case was that, well, it's the inevitable result of lyophilization, and anybody would have lyophilized it. And it's, they're inherent. What's distinguishing in this case is that the court looked to what was being claimed, and what was being claimed was the D. ester of bortezomib. Federal circuit said since that was not obvious, it didn't matter that it was the inevitable result of perhaps an obvious process of making a formulation. That lyophilized composition containing the D-manitol ester was held to be patentable, even though the d ester inevitably resulted from a lyophilization process that others could have performed. And the second example goes to a formulation where the, the focus was on the amount of buffering agent. All the claim elements were were in the art, even the buffering agent. What was different between the prior art and the invention was the amount of the buffering agent. And there was some teachings in the art about raising or lowering the amount of buffering agent. The reason why that formulation was held to be patentable, even though it would have inherently, if someone had made it, it would have inherently had particular properties. The court there said that that formulation it wouldn't have been obvious. And it said it wouldn't have been obvious because at the time, people thought that you needed buffering agent to change the pH of the gastric environment of the stomach. What applicant was discovered was that it's the ratio of buffering agent to the API, that was important. And the court saw that, well, if you want to change the pH of the stomach, you're probably going to need a lot of buffering agent. So you're probably not going to be lowering the amount of buffering agent. So there, the core really looked to, well, is this composition obvious or not? And they held that it was not obvious. And therefore, even though certain properties are inherent in the composition once formed, it's patentable because no one would have arrived at that formulation based on what was known at the time.
0: As a closing
1: question, can applicants avoid inherent obviousness rejections? Yes, they can. And I believe they should try. Two things to keep in mind. One is to publish deliberately. So really think about your publications. Know what the scientists are publishing on. Know what you're saying to the public so that to the extent you can, you avoid the issue of inherent obviousness because you haven't put that, the prior art that, out there. The other thing to think about is really what is the invention? Clinical stage inventions are usually the result of finding something unexpected, but we know from the courts, unexpected by itself may not be enough. So really analyze what is this discovery, what precisely was unexpected and why, and what makes that surprising result happen and capture that in the claim. Thank you for joining us, Stephanie. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Amy. If you have
0: any questions for Stephanie, her contact information is in the show notes. Please be sure to check out our next and final episode in our series, Promoting the Progress of Science. Stephanie will discuss the dual concepts of written description and enablement. In other words, how to translate what's in the inventor's minds into a written form that is full, clear, concise, and exact. As always, thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience,
1: please visit bakerlaw.com.